Greetings. Welcome to Two Days Denarius. And I'm Ron Thomas. I do hope all my friends got off to a good start for the holiday season. Even though we're right now and still uh, dealing with COVID pandemic and we're also dealing with the uh, after effects of an election uh, that's gone on and both of these have affected our holiday season. Um, but you know, tonight, I do these usually in the evening, I usually think better then. Uh, but tonight I do want to take some time to go to something that we totally overlooked um, this year. And I overlooked it. It was never really talked about. Uh, you know, we look at 2020 and everybody talks about uh, what a disastrous year. And, and certainly there's been some colossal losses, uh, colossal events. And, you know, now we're having the never-ending election cycle. Um, we continue to battle through issues politically, religiously, uh, all across the board. But you know, I, I am just stunned that I don't know how we overlook something, uh, especially since uh, Thanksgiving um, just took place. And I want to talk tonight about the pilgrims 400 years later. Did you hear that? 400 years later. And a few days after Thanksgiving, I got to thinking to myself, wait a minute here. It may have been the day after. Wait, this is 2020. They came here landed actually in Cape Cod in 1620. The date was around, I believe, uh, November 11th. And how did we forget that? How did we forget that? I mean, even Charlie Brown's Thanksgiving got moved uh, to off of uh, network TV over to, uh, I believe, uh, Apple TV, um, or whatever they call that. So, 400 years later, how have we forgotten the very people who courageously came over here, crossed that Atlantic, and we have kind of left them behind? I'm planning on doing two episodes on the pilgrims, and I'm going to tell you and teach you who they were, I'll talk about them in general, what they went through uh, to get here, and I'm going to talk to you about why they are important and we need to uh, remember them in our time. I want to say thank you for listening and uh, it was necessary for me to be gone for a while, uh, but I hope to be back and to continue uh, putting shows out on a regular basis. Uh, but I'm actually doing this makeshift right now. I know you don't see what I do. I normally have a nice big Samson G mic and I'm waiting for it. Um, so right now I'm using my deity. So I do want to say up front, uh, if you get moments of static in here, sometimes this thing does produce it. Uh, be patient. You'll get a sudden static sound and go away. I'm just hoping that doesn't happen. Um, so, who were the Puritans? We call them pilgrims, and you know, the pilgrims is just a word that means wanderer um, in the English language, and I'm not saying it's not okay to call them that because in a sense they were really looking for a better place to settle. Uh, they were looking for religious liberty, religious freedom where they could worship God uh, in their community. And you could say, well, that sounds like a theocracy. Well, you know, 
in their minds. They didn't mind trying to have the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Um, you know, they really wanted to live according uh, to scripture. They covenanted, covenanted together. They made an agreement with each other uh, that they all would live in, with all their strength and might uh, for the glory of God. Boy, I mean, if people even in the church only had that kind of courage to do that today. Um, but in actuality, which you may not have known, that, that this, this was an actual church congregation. It was a local church uh, in Scrooby, England. And they were a congregation that suffered harsh persecution all, all uh, over time. And one of the main persecutors of the Puritan, and, and specifically of this congregation, uh, was the King of England, uh, known as King James I. Uh, he once made a great statement uh, regarding uh, uh, the conformity, their desire for the Puritans, not just this congregation, but all of them, uh, to conform to what the King of England wanted, the Church of England at that time, which, by the way, was a very corrupt church. Uh, he made a statement, if they will not conform, I will harry them out of the country. Um, it, it got very intense. Um, and I will talk more about the levels of persecution uh, that they endured uh, later on. But what were they called? Um, in actuality, believe it or not, uh, this congregation, they weren't just pilgrims. <laughs> uh, they were separatist Puritans in a local church congregation in Scrooby, England. They were called separatist Puritans because they were two types of Puritan groups. Um, the, this was not the only group of separatist Puritans. There were many of them that pulled out uh, of the Church of England. Um, but there was another group of Puritans as well, and this group decided to remain in the Church of England, hoping that they could fix the unfixable, but, but hoping uh, that they could fix it um, from within. Um, you know, when you look at the Puritans through history, the only ones you ever really hear about are separatist Puritans. You don't ever really hear um, about the ones who stayed in the Church of England. They really, really just wound up compromising, blending in. And eventually, uh, the Puritan movement eventually failed, and I'm not going to go into that, uh, and got caught up in uh, Unitarianism. Um, so that's really where it went awry uh, as time went on. But this group of Puritans we're going to talk about really is, uh, out of tragedy, um, a great success story. So, but just know that with the Puritans, they were a local, the pilgrims as we call them, they were a local church congregation uh, that was probably around 800, I'm sorry, excuse me, 300 in number. And they were led by a pastor uh, named John Robinson. Now, um, when you talk about, I want to piggyback on something real quick, because when you go back a little bit to uh, looking at the um, Church of England uh, and how bad this got, I mean, these Puritans, the separatist group, suffered all kinds of persecution. I mean, loss of home, loss of money, imprisonment, all, all of those types of things happened to them. But that group that stayed within the church, they failed so miserably and stuff. Uh, uh, their failure is exemplified in 1662 when over 2,000 ministers uh, in England were ejected from their pulpits. The King of England put out a decree to eject 2,000 Puritan ministers uh, from their pulpit and appropriately 
it was called the Great Ejection. So there was much intense intensity uh, between the Puritans um, and and the, the Church of England, and, and special, specifically uh, with the King of Eng England and its leaders. Um, and it went on for uh, many, many years. Uh, for this group, though, the, the group of 300 led by Pastor John Robinson, um, after suffering a long period of, of persecution, they decided uh, that they would move to Leyden, Holland. And Leyden, Holland, um, especially Holland itself, uh, they exhibited uh, religious tolerance. Um, that was no problem there. Uh, but what they wouldn't allow uh, was the Puritans to witness uh, to others. Uh, the Puritans were very interested in certainly uh, people hearing the gospel message, to hearing the good news. Um, but in Holland, uh, they could not do that. Now, Holland had the same problem uh, that uh, went on in England. It was uh, the immorality, of course, the, the corruption of the church, and the immorality, and especially the abuses of what they called the Sabbath. Um, the Puritans believed that the, uh, uh, the Sabbath on Saturday from the Old Testament was transferred to Sunday uh, in the New Testament by the death of Christ, but it was supposed to be a day that was set aside uh, totally for the worship of God, um, as you know the Old Testament uh, stated. And of course, there, there, there are many uh, Presbyterians and stuff and, uh, that, who believe that today. Now, I, in my mind, as I look at that, I say, you know, um, my theological hero, Jonathan Edwards, uh, once wrote, it was actually a, a set of three sermons, and I've read them, uh, about the perpetuity or the continuance of the Sabbath transferring from Old Testament to New Testament. Um, and actually, it is a great defense of it, uh, if you ever read it. As I look at that and I say, well, I don't necessarily believe that there was a direct transference, as Jonathan Edwards said. But I do think there's a great principle involved there that we Christians should pay attention to, uh, that we need to set aside a day and handle our Sundays far better than we do. So all of us should examine our lives and say, what are we doing on the Lord's Day? Uh, it's called the Lord's Day in Scripture. That, that's a possessive. It doesn't mean your day. It's called the Lord's Day. And how are, how are we honoring God? I mean, we have so many things. But, you know, they did too. And this is what the criticism was. They, the Puritans, they had sports. The great vanity was one of them was sports, uh, doing all the shopping and, and things like that. That's what the Puritans were calling out in society, uh, much like our society today and all these choices that we have. Where are we setting aside a time uh, for God. Um, so there, I believe there is an argument to be made in looking at the way our Sundays are handled, uh, what we do on them, and how, how are we uh, conducting our church services, and how are we as individuals uh, separating, giving a separate time out of our day, especially the Lord's Day, uh, for time with Him and for Him and, and for His service. Uh, it's a good thing to look at and Jonathan Edwards really did in his uh, that set of sermons put forth some pretty good arguments uh, that I would say of principles um, that you and I could live by and how we could improve our Sundays. Look you can just go ahead and and throw the baby out with the bathwater and say oh, oh just because of the title and stuff we have nothing to do with that. Hey look uh, 
take a look at it and see what you can do to improve upon your Sundays for the glory of God. I think all of us can do that instead of just saying, oh, they're just wrong just because of a title. I mean, that's nonsense. I mean, I'll tell you what, uh, Jonathan Edwards probably uh, smarter these days than 100 theologians combined. And I do think that you and I should take a look at some of the writings from the past from people who really did have a solid witness uh, for the Lord. Um, but having said that, um, that, these were the things that, that led the Puritans uh, to oppose, uh, really, the, the Church of England, the king, and to put up with harsh persecution uh, as a result of, of their beliefs. But they were going to stand firm. This church, in particular in Scrooby, England, they covenanted together, regardless of what was happened, that they were going to stay together and they were going to follow the Lord. And, and indeed, they lost much as a result. One time they tried to leave England and the ship's captain betrayed them and they got arrested and, and suffered loss once again. Uh, but a point came where the, these uh, Puritans decided that they had to leave England. They decided upon uh, to go to Holland where they were for 11 years. Uh, they did very well there. Um, they did not like that they could not witness, but they actually were a witness, and I'm going to tell you how. Uh, these people were such good workers. Uh, they were such great citizens that after 11 years of being there, when the uh, government, the city government in Leiden, and even it came to the attention of the leadership of Holland itself, uh, heard that the Puritans were going to leave, um, they sent emissaries to them and begged them to stay. They were such good citizens, had such a good witness uh, that the government of Holland did not want them to leave. You know, that says something to you and me. How, do, how is the world look at us, uh, our own work ethic, how we live, what example do we set? You know, I mean, I, in my life, I, I give an example of my grandmother. Um, my grandmother worked at a bank for many, many years, and she lived about 23 years after she had uh, uh, retired from that bank. And 23 laters, uh, three years later, when she passed, uh, that bank sent its representatives, there, representatives um, to the visitation uh, because she left such a great example that she was such a great dedicated work to, worker. I don't know how many years she worked at this bank, uh, but she did for a good number of years that um, she left that kind of testimony. Well, you know, that's something for you and me to look at in our lives. What kind of testimony, what kind of taste are we leaving in our communities? And our, what kind of taste are we leaving uh, for others? The Puritans left a beautiful taste and Holland didn't want them to go. But you want to know why? That, that begs the question, well, why did the Puritans want to leave Holland? They had it good there. Uh, they were prospering. People liked them. They were an example to the community. You could count on them. Everything was good about them. But I want you to think about something here. The reason why they decided to leave Holland was because they were watching their kids take up the customs and the immoral ways of the people, especially the children, in their society. They knew if they were going to stay there in Holland that they would lose their children, they would lose their way of life. They saw it happening. 
after 11 years. And they came together and they decided it was time to go. They had to do something to get to where they would be able to have a community, a separate community, uh, where they could grow, live together for the glory of God, and that that heritage would be passed on. And I'll say this to you, okay, to think about this one. What about your children? Who's educating them? Is the world educating your children? Are you just saying in your own mind, well, you know, my kids need to make up their own mind about things. Um, well, as a Christian, that is unbiblical to the max. The Bible directs us to bring our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The Puritans knew that. The Puritans understood that. In our time, we are leaving the education of our kids to the world, and it has been destructive. Not instructive, it has been destructive. I gave a presentation on the problems in the evangelical world, the beliefs in the church, where you have 30% of evangelicals not believing that Jesus was God, but just say he was a great teacher. How does that happen? Well, you let the world educate the children. And they grow up, they don't believe anymore. Or they believe like the Mormons that Jesus was a created being, that Jesus was not all from eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, the Trinity, way before the world ever began. How does that happen? 65% believe more like Mormons than we believe as evangelicals in the Trinity? How does that happen? Once again, well, it's two things in that case. One is you left your children to the world, and the other one is the problem of the church not teaching. They're just entertaining the kids. That's pitiful. Our children need to grow up in doctrine. They need to know what the doctrines of the church are when they're kids. They can do it. I was reading when I was young, reading some of the good writings. I had a desire to. But you know what? Teachers need to have to implant that desire into the children uh, and even in any class of any age that they teach. Uh, we're not doing that very well. But they had the courage enough to say, we have to sacrifice this and we have to go to a new world or we aren't going to be anymore and our kids are going to be lost. And that's another thing too. How come it's so easy when our evangelical children grow up, graduate from high school, they're out of their youth group now, so they go to college or go whatever else, and, and you hardly ever see them back in church anymore. Or they just totally wind up turning against God. Hey, I've seen it over and over again. Over and over again. Okay, I commend the Puritans for what they did, because they sacrificed greatly. They were willing to sacrifice 51 of the 102 for their children. Some of those children died. Some of their parents died. But nevertheless, they, they made the sacrifice. They had the courage. How about you? Would you have that kind of courage? Moving ahead, the Puritans decided they would go in two groups. And they were actually having trouble because they were supposed to all go on two ships. But in the end, they had to decide to go in two groups because uh, the other ship, besides the Mayflower, uh, was not seaworthy. So, 
102 was going to be in the first group and about the other 200 that were left were, was going to go in the second group. Now you've never heard the name John Robinson associated with the Pilgrims simply because uh, he died in between the first group going in 1620 and the 1621 group. Um, he was a wonderful pastor, very well loved by his congregation. Um, he loved theology, he loved God, and uh, he was a great loss for the Puritans. But nevertheless, um, uh, they had other leaders like William Brewster, um, and uh, gosh, goodness, I'm missing William Brewster, Miles Standish, and uh, uh, one of the other, um, William Bradford. He's one of the most common names uh, that you and I hear. So they got out to sea, and of course, we know from history that the dangers did not end. Uh, you may not know about the persecution side, the intense persecution the Puritans endured. Um, you probably didn't know the story of their time 11 years in Holland. But you, you do need to be reminded of what happened uh, when they arrived on Cape Cod. Now, we always hear Plymouth, Plymouth, Plymouth uh, when we think about them and the uh, Plymouth Rock. And they did get over there, but that's not where they landed. Um, if you look at the Horn on Cape Cod, right at the very tip of it, um, that's modern-day Provincetown in Massachusetts. And that's where they landed. They landed at the tip. And their travel took from around September 16th to around November 11th of 1620. It was a six-week hard, six-weeks journey. Um, on that journey, they wound up getting off course because they were supposed to go to the Virginia colony. That, and that's the company uh, to whom they paid their fare to go over. Uh, to cross the Atlantic and to come to the New World. But the ship, because of the weather and everything, wound up going north. This was providential because where they would have landed was going to be an area of very well-known hostile Indians. And they probably would have been wiped out if they had gone south. So providentially, Provincetown, <laughs> they made the Provincetown landing around 11 November of 1620. So you know November, and if you've ever lived in New England, you know the, we the wind and weather can get pretty bad up there even in, in November. Um, but because of their uh, move up north, um, they actually later on, because they did that, they wound up having some strife in their group and actually some among them were going to do a mutiny uh, because they really hadn't come to figure out how they were going to do uh, self-government among themselves. So we'll talk more about that uh, in a moment. Um, but eventually, and you know, you talk about not getting enough time to put up shelter uh, for a coming winter. They went to Plymouth and landed over there, so they, they went across the bay there and um, uh, to Plymouth and they landed there on 26 December of 1620. 26 December. That's right about January. Uh, that's not a very good time, <laughs> especially, you know, where you need to cut down trees and you need food. Um, all the conditions were rife for some very serious things, starvation, sickness, uh, you name it, because <clears throat> they had no way uh, to build adequate shelters. Um, 
at that point in time. So they faced danger, loss in life from starvation. Uh, at one point, another fact you may not know, um, they were allotted only five kernels of corn a day. Five kernels of corn a day was their allotment of food. Uh, can you imagine, will you take that trip that you know you were gonna live on five kernels of corn a day? If you knew that 50%, exactly 50% of your group was going to die, would you take that trip? Would you take that trip? But you never ever, ever see in any writing that these pilgrims, that these Puritans ever regretted crossing the Atlantic. You never see that at all. In fact, they only grew out of, out of death brought life. But they also faced dangers from the Indians. And thankfully, the leader of that tribe was favorable toward meeting with the Puritans and befriending them. As long as this leader was alive, they were pretty safe. And another Indian character named Squanto, you may have heard of that one in the past, uh, taught the Puritans how to plant, how to grow things so they could live. I mean, they barely made it through the first winter. Um, barely, as you know, I mean, half, exactly half the group had passed away. And when they died and they were buried, they put them in our unmarked graves because they did not want to know, uh, the Indians to know how many of them uh, there were. So uh, they were very careful um, <laughs> because they knew uh, there were not enough of them uh, to defend uh, the group. Uh, could have easily been uh, overrun. Um, now at Provit Provincetown, some of them, and I mentioned a mutiny earlier, because when they got there, some of them were, were planning a mutiny. And this would have broke the community apart. This would not have been a good thing because if that community broke up, it would have even been easier for the uh, Indians to have wiped them out. So thankfully there were leaders there like William Bradford, uh, William Brewster, and Miles Standish. And Miles Standish, you hear that name, you think he's a, a Puritan. He may have been, but by profession, he was, he was, a, uh, he was a professional soldier. Uh, that, that really was his job. But there were others there that came together and, and, and they got an idea of, of writing up something that would hold them together as community, a written agreement uh, that they would have to set and to create laws among themselves. And you know, if you know anything of your history, this is how the Mayflower, Mayflower Compact uh, came around. This is the first historical government, governing document uh, in our history. It's not very long. Um, it's much shorter than the Declaration of Independence. But this document, this compact, was something that was written between this group and in honor of the king and country uh, to, and I'll talk to you about something else special here in a little bit, uh, to keep this group together um, so they could form a group and eventually uh, form a, uh, a thriving community. Now they also almost starved themselves a second time uh, when they set up a socialistic type economy. Um, they did this in the early stages of their arrival and it almost wiped them out. Uh, but in 1623, all the community was allowed to handle their own allotments, uh, the land allotments, uh, as they chose and, and it wound up growing a bounty. So you can say, well, they, yeah, they, they had control of their own property and their land and instead of having basically the leaders tell them what to do. And they learned right away that they could um, have great, great bounty if the people 
uh, controlled their own land, their property. And so in 1623, they had an amazing bounty. They got together at the point in time and they had the great feast. Now they did have something with the Indians in 1621, but for when I'm read of Thanksgiving, I generally take the view that the one that is our heritage for Thanksgiving in our modern times is really based upon more of the 1623 um, Thanksgiving time that the, the Puritans had. And of course, certainly Native Americans were there. Then the Puritan group was so small in 1621, uh, but by the time of 1623, they had more people there and it was a much wider festive uh, celebration. Um, so just thinking about that, it's nothing really worth arguing over. The fact of the matter is our roots of Thanksgiving come for whatever happened in 1621 or 1623, you can <laughs> you, you you can take your pick um, on what year uh, we have that. So, well, let's go ahead here. And you say, well, what do you talk about all this for about the Puritans? Well, this is the what about the Puritans. Um, the Puritans are admirable, and the legacy that we need to think about uh, the Puritans is, you know. They were forged in faith, and they were forged through the convictions and the fire of persecution, and they were not going to neither bend nor break. They suffered persecution in England, and even though things were good for them in Holland, they decided even to get themselves in a sense in, into more dangers ahead down the road to follow their beliefs. Uh, that they needed to remain a Christian, strong Christian community, and that they were going to save their children, they were going to save their generations, and not leave them to the world. What an amazing group. What kind of conviction? Where, where is that today? Why, where is our Christian thinking? This world is not our home. We are just a passing through. When you think about pilgrims and you think about wanderers as we title these folks pilgrims, yeah, they were. And if you read the book of Hebrews, Hebrews, it talks about believers being pilgrims in this world. Abraham, he looked for a place. God told him there was going to be one, but Abraham didn't inhabit that in his lifetime. He didn't own it. And there were other people of faith who wandered. There were other people who suffered greatly. There were other people who triumphed greatly for the Lord too. But the fact is, they followed the Lord. And the Puritans believed they were following him. And there's good case to believe they certainly were. Strong conviction. They wanted to be that shining city on a hill. You know, both individually as a community. You know, Jesus talked about us being the light of the world, shining the light of the glory of God to others. Or that other people can see the glory of God through us as we do his work doing what he called us to do. Well, we do that both individually and as, as a corporate church body, we do that. So, you know, in a sense, there really isn't much of one, one of these Puritans, these separatist Puritans, that really stands out. Of course, um, um, William Bradford wrote some of the history of their group. But when we look at them, we generally look at them as a whole body. And that is the right way to look at it. They were a shining city on a hill in their time. Now, this is something that you might say, oh, come on, you can't, you got to be kidding me. And I've talked about the congregation in Scrooby, England, and how I talked a little bit about their history here. 
And remember, this was a true church relocation project. They sent one group over the first year, and then they sent the other one the second year in 1621. This was a church relocation project. So I am going to say this unequivocally, that this was the single greatest church relocation project in the history of the world. Now, I have no problem debating with anybody, but, you know, this, this produced religious freedom. These are the roots. They have the roots that uh, religious freedom was erected upon. And I can tell you about the Puritans. They generally did not believe in religious freedom for everybody. That came around 1638, 39 with Roger Williams up in the colony of Rhode Island. But the roots of religious freedom, because they, were, they came here seeking the freedom of worship and to worship in their context without the King of England telling them to do, the roots of religious freedom in this country are owned by these separatist Puritans. And, of course, we can look at the, our country, uh, what it became and everything, certainly the greatest nation in the world. This was unequivocally the greatest church relocation project in the history of the world. And that's exactly what it was. They had no idea what this would become with the, the seeds they, that they were planting. They just looked like they were doing, following their convictions for the glory of God. Now, the Puritans were not dour and sour people. You know, you look at them and you look at drawings of them and whatever, you always see them looking so stern, looking so harsh, you know, that they had moldy eggs along with rotten pizza every day. Uh, no, no, no. This is, these are falsehoods uh, that are sent out by imbeciles. They were happy people. They were hardworking people. They were truly spiritual people who loved the Lord and G Lord Jesus Christ. Um, how can you look at the leaders of Laden wanting their so bad? If these were sour, dour people and stuff like that, why in the world would the leaders of Laden and the, and the government of Holland want the Puritans to stay there? Because they were a happy people. They delighted in following the Lord. They believed in glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. They were great citizens. They were reliable. They were dedicated to vocation just excellent on their jobs and certainly uh, their spirituality by anything compared to what was going on in Holland was completely unmatched. So the Puritans were not sour and dour and they were not people that, that others avoided. Uh, they, they were desired people. They were great workers. You knew if you took something, if you took your iron to be sharpened to the Puritans and stuff, it was going to come back just right. It was going to work and it was going to work well. So consider that, uh, that they are an example of what we should be like and what kind of taste we leave in people's mouths uh, as we serve our Lord and Savior. And here's another thing. Every time you see the Puritans, you always see them dressed in black and white, the funny caps and whatever. Uh, they like colors. They like colors. You know, many years people could have an impression maybe black and white TV caused this. But uh, cowboys, you know, you think of their time and everything that they, they maybe only wore black, white, or brown. Um, the movie Tombstone actually had it right because if you study the history of cowboys, 
uh, you will find that they uh, like colors too. And I credit that movie because it got that part correct. Uh, but the Puritans liked colors as well. They weren't always in black and white. Uh, they were human, all right? They were people who lost, had suffered great loss, uh, but they pressed on. Their perseverance is an example for everybody. They finished their course. They finished their race. And sadly, maybe because of some things happened or maybe what happened in Salem years later, um, you know, people put a negative context on the Puritans, uh, unfortunately. I'm telling here to tell you, you some of the richest, um, most beautiful, devotional writings in Christianity that you will ever read come from the Puritans. I, I enjoy reading uh, Richard Baxter, Thomas Watson, uh, when I get a chance to read John Flavo, David Clarkson. David Clarkson was uh, the administrative assistant to John Owen, the famous John Owen. And John Owen is a very difficult one to read, but there are those who love John Owen and, and, and read him all the time and, talk, and quote him all the time. Uh, Jonathan Edwards can be tough sometimes, but I, I enjoy Jonathan Edwards more than I enjoy John Owen. Um, but these are some of the most beautiful writings uh, in all of Christendom. And it's sad that these are not promoted more, but, um, you know, people can start with the writings of Thomas Watson. He's very readable, uh, but he writes some great books and he has an uncanny wisdom, uncanny way of quoting uh, things. You just say, you know, it's, it's almost like things that are said in our times. Now I say Jonathan Edwards because he was a descendant of the Puritans and and uh, maybe, you know, maybe considered late in the sense of history, but he believed just like they did. Um, and uh, just a total mountain, a Mount Everest of theological uh, thought. Um, but in a sense, and again, uh, their devotional, and the Puritans were forged in persecution. You know, you can't criticize the Puritans. They had the joy of being forged in persecution. Count it all joy when you suffer various trials. I mean, these people were living for God and they endured all kinds of struggles and suffering. They had the right, they had the joy of going through those things. Don't go criticizing the Puritans. You and I haven't suffered. You, you, you can't judge them that way. It wasn't only this group of separatist, um, this group of separatist Puritans that had issues with the Church of England stuff, as if I reminded you, 2,000 of them got thrown out of their chapels um, in 1662. Certainly that was years down the road from the, the Plymouth land, or the Cape Cod landing, but no matter, they, they continued to suffer and suffer harshly. They were forged in the fires of persecution. What does that say about you and me? We don't have a right to criticize them. We have every right to admire them, and that's what we ought to do. Best of all, and I save the best for last, and I save point seven for last, because you know, if you got six points, you gotta have to make up seven, but nope, this one was gonna be in there all along. You need to understand this one, and this is what's even better. Um, I talked to you about the Mayflower Compact, and after the first short paragraph, 
where it's addressed to the king. Listen to this and listen closely. Having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith in honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents, solemnly, mutually, in the presence of God and one another, combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid. And it goes on. It doesn't stop there. All right. I want to know if you caught something there. Having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. Do you know and understand they saw themselves as missionaries? They did. For the advancement of the Christian faith. So they came here and, and part of this was a mission project. That's a beautiful thing. I look at the Mayflower Pot Compact and and say, how in the world did we miss that? How in the world that they came here to bring Christ to the shores of the new world? We used to admire, admire missionaries in our church and stuff. Why? I, I can't even remember the last time I heard a missionary presentation uh, in a church. What are we doing? What are we thinking in the evangelical church anymore? What are we doing to the glory of God? Are we serving God God's way? They believed in their time. They had a mission. Yeah, one of their missions was to build that community and, and, and serve God that way. But they also believed it was their work to share Christ with others. You understand why I now, I call it the greatest church relocation project in the history of the world? I am not the only one to have given that moniker. In fact, the one I heard this one from the first time was uh, D. James Kennedy, uh, the late minister of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, one of my faith heroes. Uh, he is the one that I actually carry this thing on because it's correct. It's correct. It was. And they took this. Their main reasons was for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. What are you doing? How are you living for the glory of God? How are you living for the advancement of the Christian faith? Do you even know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Uh, you must come to Christ and believe in him and accept him. Ask him for forgiveness of sins. Repent. That repent means it's a change of mind that leads to a change of direction uh, that you're not going to follow your ways anymore. You're dead to yourself and you're going to live uh, for him. A true change. Not this false gospel people preach today. Oh, you just love and everything going to be okay. You know what? You and I have to realize our sin separates us from the Lord if we are lost. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All means all. Um, and unless you confess Jesus with your mouth as Lord, that means take him as your Lord and Savior. Believe your heart. God has raised him from the dead. You know, you will be saved if you do that. But what about those of you who are saved who are listening, uh, listening to this? How do you find inspiration from this? Um, are you backslidden? Does it mean nothing to you of what Christians in the past have done? These are examples, really, of patterns that we should look at um, how we should direct our own Christian life. You know, I know I talked about Sundays earlier. What, we doing, what are we doing with Sundays? Um, among other things, uh, these things do matter.
So take some inventory of your life. You know, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 14 to 16, and I read this in dedication to these people as we get ready uh, to close here shortly. Uh, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. He's talking about to those of us who believe. You know, Ronald Reagan talked years ago about during his presidency, he wanted to be America to be that shining city on a hill. Well, the Puritans saw themselves uh, that way, that they came, that they were going to be a shining light, a shining city on the hill. But, you know, as believers, we're supposed to be that shining light. Are we manifesting the glory of God to others in our lives? It's a question we should answer. And unequivocally, these people did. These people did. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your God in heaven. You know, I say to you, we have all these things that make us forget something so important. An anniversary that nobody should have missed. But we missed it. I'm not a guy, I'm not a man as a minister who's going to let us forget what happened 400 years ago. And you know, this message will be on my podcast, always available to people to listen to. And I hope they do. I hope you do. Because we have much to be grateful for. And God will judge your people who, aren't, who are not thankful for his gifts that he's given. Let it not be us. Let it be, not be us. Christian, the word of God says, and everything gives thanks because this is the will of Christ concerning you and me. Everything. Let us do that. Well, I want to say to you, thank you for listening to today's Denarius. And as we go and as we get into the holiday season, live your life for the glory of Christ. Be thankful for all of the good things that he's done. And certainly at this time of year, uh, you know, you, you see the Salvation Army bell ringing and stuff. Get out there and, and help out. Give others. Bring gifts to them. Put money in the, in the canister. Um, and certainly be free to share of your wealth with others. Many people are hurting in this world. Uh, many people are hurting in our country. You and I have the opportunity to let our work show so shine so that others will see and glorify God in heaven. Well, thank you for lending your ears. Uh, this is Ron Thomas. Until the next two days, Denarius, may God's richest, bless richest blessings be with you.